Because if we're called to be Christians, if we're going to bear that name, then it means that we're devoted followers of Jesus, that we belong to him first and foremost above all else. And that shouldn't just be something we proclaim with our words, but it should be seen in our lives. This morning, I get to invite up my friend Jacob Haynes. Jacob, where are you at? Here he comes. Jacob uh, serves in our, uh, our middle school ministry, and he's just, he does worship. He's helped in leadership there. Um, does a lot, of, a lot of cool things. And today, he's going to read. He's going to show you guys he can read. I can read we're, very, we're very proud of him. So if you would, if you would stand with us uh, as we read. Move it wherever you need to. Yes, I can read. All right, we are in Acts uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 19, and I'll just read to the end. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world, and this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. You can be seated. Thank you. Well, this, this week was a, a, a milestone for me. I, um, a, a few weeks back, I got one of those letters in the mail letting me know that I had been summoned for jury duty. Um, super exciting. Uh, you may think that's not super exciting, but I was like, oh, I was summoned to Nevada County. We're locals. We're here. You know, I, I, I felt like it was like the next step of me doing my part around here. Um, but as I was thinking about that, I, you know, had to call in, do that whole thing and, and ended up not having to do anything. But as I was, I was thinking through it, you know, I've gone through that process before and always wondering what the questions you're going to be asked, if you should make it to the select few and those sorts of things. And one of the questions that always seems to come up is like, what do you do? What's your vocation? And for me, that always feels like a loaded conversation. I can always go a few different ways, you know, and I, I always feel like with jury duty in particular, uh, I, have, I have a really easy out. They're like, well, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a pastor, and that's why you should believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. And they're like, next, you know, we're moving on. And, 
and I, I love being a pastor, not just because it gets me out of things, um, but no, I, I love being a pastor. And so I, you know, I do get some weird interactions where people, you know, suddenly I'm talking with them and they ask what I do. And then they all of a sudden do that audit where they're like, what did I just say in front of him? And I normally don't say these words and I normally, and I'm like, no, that's not, that's not how this works. And um, you can do three Hail Marys and you'll be fine. Uh, but that's one of the labels that I have, right? It's a name that I hold tight to. I'm a pastor. That defines part of who I am. Not all of who I am, but I have a lot of other names too. I have the name of, I'm a follower of Jesus. I take that real serious. I'm a, I'm a husband. I take that real serious. I'm a dad. Oh, what a joy to be a dad, to, to get to just be with my kids. I'm a friend. I'm a, I'm a son. I'm a brother. All these different labels that identify me. And there's some labels that I really lean into, and then there's some labels that maybe I wish I didn't have. But it's funny to me how much these labels begin to matter. See, we step into a passage today where there's a new uh, distinction being given to the followers of Jesus. There's a, a name that they are called for the first time. It's a name that we still carry. It's one that we still hold dear to, those who follow Jesus. And it's a name that's come to define this, this movement. But there's some good and there's some bad to that. Because as we walk through this passage that's going to take us from Jerusalem, 300 miles north, up to Antioch, and then back down to Jerusalem, we're going to see along the way that some people have become captive to the wrong titles and to the wrong names. And it has pretty devastating effects. Because the truth is, each of us in this room, we all have a list of names. Again, some of those names we enjoy. Oh, she's the smart one. Yeah, we grab hold of that. Oh, he's the good looking one. Oh, I'll, I'll take that. And then there's other names that have been assigned to us, maybe at some point in time that have just left a lingering effect when someone just defined you as a loser and you've never been able to get out of the shadow of that. Or you just feel the sting of that. That's all I'll ever amount to is this name that someone has given me. Because these labels that we carry, they have power over us. And we currently, we live in a day and age where names and labels, they matter. Or what your nationality, your race, your political party, your religious affiliation, your sexuality, all of these conversations are how people choose to identify and they hold tight to that. But what we see is that whatever label, whatever name you choose to wear becomes the label or the name that you begin to serve. You have to play your part to find your tribe. And what we'll see this morning as we step back into the book of Acts is the importance of rightly ordering the names that we wear, the identity that we choose to live in. So let me pray for us and then we're going to turn back to the beginning of Acts 11. Father, as we step in to your word, I pray, God, that you would just speak to us, uh, that you would, you would capture our hearts anew, those areas, Father, that we've allowed adrift. Uh, would you bring us back to you? Lord, anyone who's coming in carrying maybe a, a heavy label, a heavy name that's been defining them for so long that they've longed to shake, would they know that, that that's possible in you, that change and freedom is possible in you? And so, Lord, as we look to your word, would it come more alive to us today? We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, uh, we got to hear from my friend Steve as he walked us through this incredible moment in the life of the church where this Roman centurion, this person who was considered other, unclean, uh, has this radical experience as he comes to Jesus. It, It changes everything. And Steve spent time reminding us of the importance that the gospel is for everyone, that the gospel changes everything, and that the gospel is worth giving everything to. And in these moments, we've been watching throughout the book of Acts as the message of God, the movement of God, is moving further and further out. It's gone from Jerusalem, and now it's moving into the world at large. For the mission of God is on the move. And where we come today in in Acts chapter 11, we've just heard the same story. Uh, Luke has just walked us through what happened with Peter and Cornelius. And then beginning in Acts chapter 11, he retells exactly what just happened. And and I think it's important for us whenever we get to a space where something's repeated like this, where we ask ourselves the question, why? Because Luke had limited space. He was working on a scroll that was about 35 feet in length as he was going through. And so he knew with all the stories that he had going that he was going to need to edit certain things and leave certain things out. And as the Spirit was carrying him along and editing as he went, this was an area where he came to and he said, you know what, this story is worth telling twice. Because the significance that it carries changed so much. Because what we see is that this is a seminal moment in the life of the church where something significant is brewing, where God is doing something new. And that's what makes knowing this feel like the beginning of Acts chapter 11 is such a surprise. In verse 1, it says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to the uncircumcised men and you ate with them. See, word starts to get around uh, from 300 miles away of what Peter had experienced. And, And this circumcision party shows up saying, what were you thinking? Now, let's be honest. The circumcision party sounds like no party that any of us want to be a part of. But this group was well intentioned. So often we read into them and we want to villainize them of like, man, they're just, they're all about rules. But that's what they'd known for so long. They had clung to these religious rites of being clean versus unclean. And they saw Jesus as not just like the abolishment of law, but the fulfillment of the law. And so they wanted to remain distinct that God had called them first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And so for them, this mattered. This this was like worth fighting over. And I also, I always think there's warning for us whenever we're too quick to be like, what's wrong with these people? We all carry the same propensity to rules. We've all had that moment where we've looked at another person's actions and we're like, they're not doing it right. That's not how that should be done, right? Or that moment where you're like, well, you know, we've always done it more like this. So let me show you here. See, following rules can create a sense of, of safety because it's, it's known there's, there's boundaries, there's limits. But what we see in Jesus and what we find in following Jesus is that he's anything but safe. And what's unfolding here between Peter and the circumcision party, it had been ingrained in them for centuries. Gentiles were unclean. They were other. There were rules to follow and there was people that you did not associate with. It's just easier that way. 
This is why Jesus, we see in his ministry, he got into so much trouble all the time. Because he'd hang out with the religious leaders and he'd hang out with the outcasts. He had a way of going where people were like, Why, do you know who you're hanging out with? He was with the clean and he was with the unclean. And if you've been reading along with us as we've been going through the scriptures this year, you know we're in Leviticus right now. And Leviticus is all about rules and regulations and laws. And, and how do you, when you become unclean, become clean again? It just walks through all of this distinction. This is what's in the back of this circumcision party's mind of all these things that keep us apart and clean. In Leviticus, if you're in there, it's a, it's a tough read. Although I will tell you this week, there's, there's a particular verse I took a lot of hope in. Uh, Leviticus 13.40 said, If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald. <laughs> And he is clean. <laughs> he who has ears, let him hear. Yeah. But this sense of who was kind of in and who was out, this distinction, again, it was just a part of, of what they knew. And so it was a significant hurdle for them to overcome. I remember when I was going through driver's training. And we were driving around and learning how to drive. And you've got the person next to you that has their own brake just in case things get out of hand. And my goal was like, I don't want him to ever have to push that brake. And at the end of one of our sessions, he said, do you mind if we go and, go and pick up another student and they'll drive you home? Right? I didn't know any better. I'm like, sure, that sounds great. So I get in the back seat, and as, as this woman gets in the car, and the two of them are having this conversation, and I start to piece together that uh, America is new for her. And, and where she was from, everyone drove on the other side of the road. Right? And so she's trying to get used to being on the right side of the road. And so we came to a stoplight, and she starts to take a left-hand turn. And as she does so, she goes straight into oncoming traffic, right? You know, my teacher used the brake. He's grabbing the wheel. He's doing everything that he could to kind of write that. And we're walking through that. And, you know, I just sat quietly in the back like this the rest of the ride home. And everything was fine. I just had to change my pants when I got home. But it was good. It was good. <laughs> But this woman, she, she, was, she was acting out of instinct from what she knew, what she had been raised in. The law of the land that she was a part of, this made sense. And now to overcome that, to do something different, to be in a new place with a new law and, and a new way of doing things, that was really hard. In the same way for us, we have a way that we want to go, that we're naturally bent towards destruction. But when we encounter Jesus, we are now under his law, his way of doing things. And he's going to naturally start to shift us back towards him. But there's some bumps in the road along the way, aren't there? Where we feel that tension of like, no, I want to go back my way. And so this is what we see unfolding between Peter and this party that have both come to encounter Jesus. But they're like, how does this play out well? Because our tendency is to fall back on what, what we knew. And the danger is the, the grace of God is so, so overwhelming that we find ourselves, even though we believe it, we trust it, still wanting to earn it. And we still want others to have to earn it too. But that's not the way of God's grace. Now it's unmerited. It's something that we can never earn that just washes over us and we get to live within that truth. And so Peter starts walking these men through what he had experienced. He's walking them through all the details of his own reluctance of like, I didn't see what God was doing here either. But in verse 12, he says, and the spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. See, God was moving now 
without distinction. He had sent his son into the world to save the world. And the mission of God is on the move. Verse 17, Peter says, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Peter's like, listen, I understand your your hesitation here. But as I was watching this unfold, I saw God's hand all over this. And I'm not going to go to battle with God. I'm going to join in with what he's doing. And so verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They come to this understanding that God is moving now in a new way that the Gentiles, when they repent and turn towards Jesus, they can have the same life in him that they are enjoying. That the way of salvation is for everyone, everywhere. And so this good news is that's being settled and there's going to be more conversations as the church is growing in this moment. Suddenly we're going to see this good news grows. Verse 19, we enter into a a new section that says, Now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them. Men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. This verse hinges us back to chapter 8, when after Stephen was martyred, after he was killed for his belief in Jesus, that this persecution broke out in the early church. And where we see great destruction and we see great evil within that, even within that, God uses that as a tool to spread the good news of who he is. And so it goes into Samaria and it keeps on going further and further. And so we're told that some traveled as far as as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. And at first they were speaking to the Jews only. And we find that suddenly now our story is going to center in Antioch. That Antioch is going to become this new outpost for the kingdom and the movement of God. When you look up at this map, you see Antioch up there. Antioch was a significant uh, city. It was the third most influential city in in the Roman uh, Empire. It was only behind Rome and Alexandria. Rome was known for its power. That was the place and the seat of power. Alexandria was known for its intellect. Antioch was known for its influence. It was known for the new ideas of people that would come through and it spread in the way that it would, it would influence other cities and nations around them. And so Antioch, about 20 miles in from the Mediterranean Sea, also was right on the edge of the Orontes River that came in, which meant that commerce ships could come in and they could load and they could go to the port and they could dock and they could come out. So you had new ideas coming in and out, new people coming in and out. You had cultic practices of temple worship through, through prostitutes. So you had this influence of people pursuing pleasure at any cost in a wealthy city. This becomes a place that is an outpost for the kingdom of God, a very unlikely place. And all we're told is that some unknown men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they come over. And we're not given their names We're not given any details about them, really. We're just told of their actions, that they come into Antioch, and they're speaking to the Hellenists. Now, the Hellenists here, we've run into them before, and when we first talked about them, they were the Greek-speaking Jews. So this was those who were coming around that had been influenced by the Greek culture, but they were still Jewish in their faith. 
Here the term Hellenist is being used of Greeks in general. So this is a mixed audience. It's some Greek-speaking Jews and some who are just Greeks referred to as pagans or people who are pursuing other uh, means of, of spiritual satisfaction. And so now they're broadening their audience. So these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they come over and they're speaking to these Greek people. And what is their message? Because this is important. What are we told that they are preaching? What are they proclaiming? Do they come in saying that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, yes and no. They don't use that term. They actually, it comes in and it says that they were preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, why that distinction? Why does that matter? Because we see that they adjusted their method, not their message. They adjusted their method to better reach their audience with the same message. This is so important. The Greeks, they would have understood what it means for someone to be Lord. They knew Caesar as Lord, the the sovereign over all things. So when they come in proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, that term is going to hit differently than when they say Jesus Messiah. Now the Jews in the synagogues, they hear Messiah and they understand who the anointed one is and that's going to build a bridge and some connection there. But Jesus is Lord. Suddenly we're broadening the audience that's going to understand here. I think this is one of the fascinating things about language, right? We can tailor it to our audience. We can use words and jargon that make people feel left out and like outsiders and have no idea what's going on. And, and unfortunately, there's times when we can do that within church. We can use kind of this Christianese that those who know, know, and those who don't are like, I don't get what's happening right now. Because I can speak of being justified by the penal substitutionary atonement of the Christ. And some will nod their heads and be like, yes, he's getting meaty today. Or I can say we're all saved by the sacrifice of Jesus. And that builds a bridge of understanding. Well, What does that look like? I, I believe now more than ever, we need to be cultural apologists that we understand the world around us. Not... Not to drift towards it, but to understand how it works and operates so that we can be best ready to proclaim the message of Jesus. See, these unknown men began to proclaim Jesus as Lord so that more could come to know him. But before we we move on and, and kind of look to this next section, I want to make sure we notice who was the instrumental people in this move of God here. Who are the ones that that made this, that God used to bring about this this newness? It was ordinary followers of Jesus, proclaiming the extraordinary good news of Jesus. It was people like you and me, captured by Jesus, experiencing his goodness, now proclaiming his goodness. And when you you read back and you look at these ones who were preaching the Lord Jesus and we see all of their qualifications and their credentials and it feels so intimidating, right? Because it says, but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. Wait, there are no credentials there listed. There is no title given. These are people that had been affected by the message of Jesus and now we're in turn turning around and proclaiming it to all who would listen. This is where you and I come in. This is what happens when the message of Jesus gets down deep inside our bones. This is why it's important for us to understand the culture around us so that we can build bridges with the gospel. 
so that more and more can come to know the hope that is under the banner of Jesus' name. So here's my question before we move on from this section. Is the good news of Jesus good news to you? Is the good news of Jesus good news to you? Yes. So follow that up. Why? Why is it good news for you? And that's your lunch conversation today. You're welcome. <laughs> but seriously, I think it's so important for us to be conversant in this. That we're always ready with the hope that we have in Jesus. That we can speak to how he has changed me. Because that is so important. There, there's a lot of good that comes from knowing all the arguments of the resurrection. And having a good apologetic yes. But people are very curious. How does this actually affect your life? Why are you making the decisions you are making? How in the midst of all the chaos I see around me do you seem to be calm? How do you continue to extend love to somebody who just seems to be so angry towards you? Well, let me tell you why, and it's the good news of Jesus, and this is how he's changed me. For us to be conversant and always ready with that message is something that's just got to be there. And I believe that's what we see with these men as they're going into Antioch, into this place that seems like the most unlikely of places, the most unlikely of missions fields, and they're just sharing who Jesus is and proclaiming his name above all other names. And so we see this movement spreading out. And in verse 22, we, we find that a report starts to come back to the Jerusalem church. Verse 22, this report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. And so we see, similar to what had happened earlier, as the message, the good news of Jesus starts to reach into Samaria, as Philip was proclaiming it there, what happened next? Well, Peter and John showed up. Again, not like big brothering it and coming over their shoulder, but to kind of validate what's going on. And so all of a sudden, now 300 miles north of Jerusalem, there's this outbreak of the kingdom happening in Antioch, and it's getting down to Jerusalem. They're like, well, we should probably go check this out. And so they send somebody. But who do they send this time? They don't send one of the apostles. They don't send one of the 12. No, they send Barnabas, who I think is just the perfect person to go and take part in what's going on there and just also breathe life into this movement of what God's doing. Because what do we know of, of Barnabas? Well, he was the son of encouragement. Barnabas was also a bridge builder. We saw that already with, with Saul, that he was the first to be like, I'm going to go in and, and I'm going to vouch for you, Saul. I'm going to stand with you. It's just in his nature. And so he shows up in this moment. And what I love is that when he arrives, it's not with his clipboard going, you guys better prove this to me. No, he steps into what God is doing and he sees the grace of God written all over it and he is, he's glad, he's filled with joy. He rejoices in what God's doing. And he, he exhorts them. He gives them a, a message. He says, remain faithful. Remain steadfast. This name that you have taken on yourself of Jesus, that you are pointing yourself towards, remain steadfast in purpose towards him, for he is good. And he rejoiced in what God was doing. See, what I love about Barnabas is to him, the kingdom of God was never this exclusive club that he was trying to keep people out of. 
Barnabas knew that all were welcome as long as they turned towards Jesus. And so he wanted to make Jesus known to as many people as he could. And he continued to build bridges. And so Barnabas steps in, a man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, as he's described. This is just a weird little piece of trivia, but he's also described as a, as a good man. In Luke's writings, in both the gospel accounts and in Acts, there's only two people that are, are specifically called uh, a good man. And that's Joseph of Arimathea, uh, who offered the, the burial place for Jesus, and, and Joseph Barnabas, two, two Josephs. So, your name's Joseph. I hope you're a good guy. Uh, I have nothing to say other than that. I just thought it was interesting. But whenever I'm studying through something, when I, something like that pops out, I usually circle that, and I'm like, I want to come back to that and chase that down and see if there's anything that God's speaking through, through that. Anyway, I digress. So Barnabas, the bridge builder, steps in again. And he's part of this new movement of God, and he's helping to bridge the gap that so many are feeling. He's not trying to widen it. He's like, no, 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 we're, gonna, we're, we're in this together, and let me encourage you to step forward into what's happening. And we're told that the hand of God was moving, that a great many people started turning, that this was, this was not something conjured up by, you know, these two guys coming in and just trying harder. No, God was in this. He was moving, and everyone was just in for the ride here. And so as more and more people are coming, Barnabas starts to feel a need for some backup. And so in verse 25, it says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So Barnabas, seeing this movement of God, more and more people coming, and he's looking at the city of Antioch. And I think part of what was going through his mind, I can't say this for sure, but when you look at the pieces coming together, Antioch and its unique makeup, uh, by most estimates at this time, there would have been about 500,000 people uh, that resided in, in the area of Antioch. So it's, it's a large city. Uh, and there's a large Jewish population. And so you had this Jewish influence, but you also had this worldly influence. And I think so, uh, Barnabas was thinking, okay, who do I know uh, that can deal with hostility really well? Who do I know that's a, that's a clear preacher? And he's like, who do I know that uh, I'm going to go get Saul from Tarsus? I'm going to bring him back and we're going to, we're going to walk through this together and, and share the load. And so the two of them teach for a year as this church just continues to grow and they taught a great many people is what we are told. And then we have this little moment where it says, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now what I find fascinating about this is this name, Christians, one that we still use today, is only used three times in the New Testament. Three times. That's, that's not a lot of times. That's it's three times. It's used here. It's used in Acts 26. And it's used in 1 Peter 4. And when it's used, it's being used by, by others. Many believe that even here, this name wasn't coming as a self-designation. Like the disciples, the believers, as they were called, the followers of the way, they weren't saying, this is who we now want to be called. We can also rule out that this wouldn't be a name that was being given by uh, the Jewish people because they wouldn't want to say, oh, yes, these are Christ followers. These are Messiah followers. No, they, they would not want that. What also makes this stand out is for a long time as, this, as the way of Jesus was becoming and, and finding its roots, that people just saw it as like an offshoot of Judaism. Here now, it's becoming distinct. 
apart from Judaism. And here's these Christians that are being labeled. Now, Antioch, again, was a city that was influential, often gave nicknames to various people. And so some just think that it just started to become known around, oh, there's these weird Christians that are here. Because in the Greek and in the Latin, to, to add that en in, at the end of a, a saying would be like, if you were a Herodian, it meant that you were a follower of Herod. If you were a Caesarian, you were a follower of Caesar. And so the title Christian means that you are devoted to or belonging to Christ. And I think this is so important. I think this is so important. Because identifying as a devoted follower or belonging to Christ, particularly in the first century, was a risky proposition. It's not until the, 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 the late first century, early second century that we actually have Christians identifying themselves as Christians. Until then, it was just government officials talking to them as Christians. This would be a question that when they were brought in and, and facing persecution or facing death, if they did not deny being a Christian, that they would be asked over and over again, are you a Christian? Are you devoted to and belonging to Christ? And when they would say no, it would often lead to the loss of their own life. And so we see this designation taking shape. And how did they get this name? Why, why did this come about? And I think this is so important for us. It comes about because they're always talking about Jesus. That's what set them apart. Their message, their claims always went back to Jesus. Who they were about and what they were about always came back to Jesus. See, this is what it meant for them and this is what it still means for us now that all of life is centered around Jesus. It's not something that we add on to the way that we're, we're living. It's not something that, oh, I'm a follower of Jesus and that, that comes underneath my, my political leanings. I'm a follower of Jesus and that comes underneath my vocation and my job. No, 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 no. If you're a follower of Jesus, that comes above all else. And this is what they were known for. They wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. The Roman, church, or the Roman Empire didn't know what to do with them because they, they could not stamp this group of people out. This small group of people would not be stopped because they just kept proclaiming the hope that they had found in Jesus. Because Christ is first and foremost in everything. But the danger for us is there's times where we allow our, our love of rules and control and I just, I just need to be good, right? That's what defines me as a Christian. I don't swear. That's what defines, no, 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 no. What defines you as a follower of Jesus is that you are following Christ above all else. That you are finding your hope and, you, and your strength in him. Not in how you're trying to earn it. Not in how you're just trying to do better. It's not an add-on. Jesus becomes the guide for us in all of life. And we see that this is what was taking root in the church in Antioch. This fixation on Jesus. 
And when they followed after Jesus in such a way, when they received the generous grace of Jesus, they became generous people. And who they reached out to and also how they came around their fellow brothers and sisters. And I love what we see unfold here because it's so unique to the early church and would have blown people's minds in the Roman Empire. Verse 27, it says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. This was kind of a normal function. Prophets would come down, itinerant prophets. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. We, we have on record that there was a number of, of famines that did occur and particularly hit Jerusalem in some different ways during the reign of Claudius. In verse 29, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So in the midst of this, they're being told that there's going to be a famine. And their first inclination is not to go, how do we protect ourselves, but is to send whatever goods they can, whatever they were able to, to people 300 miles away from them because they saw no distinction. Like the church in Jerusalem, those are our brothers and sisters. We are one with them under the banner of Jesus. We are united in them. And so they didn't think twice about that. To generously give, to send monetary funds down to Jerusalem, whatever goods they could, down to help this church in Jerusalem. Now, to the Romans watching this around them, they would have thought this was madness. How does this possibly benefit you? How is this possibly helping you? This makes no sense. But the way of Jesus does not make sense often. It looks so radical. It looks so different because it's not self-serving. It's, it's self-giving because we've been given so much in him. And that's what we see in the early church. Is their radical love for their brothers and sisters and the communities around them stood out in the midst of all the chaos that they saw. This is why I love getting to be a part of, of what we do at Crossroads. Because our intent is never that we just take care of what's in here. It's always how can we participate in what the kingdom of God is doing both here locally but also globally. And the works we have within Ghana, within India, within Ireland, within Burundi, within Turkey. People that are doing incredible gospel work, proclaiming the name of Jesus in amazing ways. We want to we be behind them, pushing them on that more and more can come to know the name of Jesus. And it's just as important it is for us to do that globally. It's just as important to do that locally. And suddenly this account brings us full circle back to Jerusalem. Whereas before Peter and the circumcision party were going back and forth, now Saul and Barnabas are coming back from Antioch bearing gifts to give to the elders at Jerusalem. Now, this is just worth noting as, as we're watching the church try and figure some things out and kind of grow into itself a little bit, that we have this new designation now given to the leaders who are in Jerusalem. It, it usually was just the apostles or the 12 that were the ones in charge, but now we have this term elders, which widens that a little bit. It means that those who are outside the, the apostles can now be leading. We see Paul do this when he goes and he plants various churches all over the world that he always raises up elders, leaders, local people there to care for the church and look out for the church and shepherd the church. And so we see that already beginning to form. 
And as they come back, we see two churches acting as one. A conversation that will still have some pretty major bumps in the road as they go along. But what unites these churches is their devotion to following Jesus. It's his name that brings them together. It's, it's what he's accomplished that, that gives them one purpose. It's what brought them together and it's what brings us together still. So what do we take from this? Where, where do we grab hold of? Well, I think there's some, some pretty big questions we need to ask ourselves, some things that we need to examine in our own hearts as to what motivates us, as to what names and labels we're trying to live into. Are, are we chasing after the wrong things? See, why was the circumcision party so concerned with what Peter had experienced? Because it messed with their rules and it, it messed with their sense of like, we, we know this is right. And they were motivated by that sense of like, we know this is right because we're living this just so. And when you bump against us, well, that makes us feel a little bit out of control. And when you bump against that and you feel that sense of I'm a little bit out of control, what you're starting to discover is maybe Jesus is not your anchor, but you're anchoring yourself on something else. That's why I love what we see in Barnabas as he's sent out in all these different moments, building bridges wherever he goes, witnessing God move in new ways. He's anchored. He's anchored in the work of Jesus, and he's like, I just want to see it move through everybody. See, my prayer is that we align more with, with that of, Lord, we just want to see more and more experience the goodness of who you are. Because if we're called to be Christians, if we're going to bear that name, then it means that we're devoted followers of Jesus, that we belong to him first and foremost above all else. And that shouldn't just be something we proclaim with our words, but it should be seen in our lives. And so I would encourage you to take some time and to examine what, what are maybe some of the other labels that you've allowed to to creep up and maybe push Jesus out of the way. Where Jesus has just become an add-on to your own way, your own cause. Where you're trying to, to fit him into what you want to do. You're trying to co-opt scripture to say what you want it to say. Instead of saying, no, Jesus, you're Lord. And even though it feels like I'm turning into oncoming traffic, I'm going to trust what you're saying because your way is the way in which I want to go. See, I believe this is the tension that finds its way into all of us. And unfortunately, fear can be an incredible motivator. Loss of control can be a powerful motivator as well. But Christ is the only one who can overcome all things. I don't want to bear the name of Jesus in vain. I don't want to use him for my own way and my own agenda. I want to follow him. I want to allow him to shape me. I want to allow him to change my desires. I want to allow him to change my heart that it may begin to beat like his. And if I'm going to be known for something, may it be that Jesus was always on my lips. 
as I believe he is the first and the last, he's the beginning and the end, and he is the savior of my soul. And so for each of us in this room, for those who've experienced the freedom that comes in Christ, let's not go back to the land of slavery and, and become hitched to the wrong name, but let us continue with our eyes fixed on Jesus. And if we're going to bear that name as Christian, then may we be known to walk like Jesus walked. May it be known that we speak the hope we have in his name because we know that apart from him, we can do nothing. But in him, we find everything. You pray with me. Father, as we come here this morning and we read through your word, Lord, it is easy to drift in our hearts towards lesser things. Father, it is easy to wrongly order our hearts to put something over you. And so, Father, I pray in these moments that you would you would show us where we are off. That you would show us through your spirit where we need to turn back towards you. And Father, I pray for those in this room that feel like the, the name that they've been carrying is something that they, they can't get rid of. That the shame that they've been carrying is something that they, they can't overcome. Father, I pray that they would see that you can that you meet them right where they need to be met, that you can pave the way towards life, that you gave everything, that in you we might find everything. So, Father, would we rightly order our hearts to follow after you? Would we never bear your name in vain? But, God, would we seek to be known as Christians because we just can't stop talking about who you are. We love you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we conclude and, and worship this morning, we're going to come to the table and partake of the bread and of the cup. And as you, you pull out that cup and you open the bread, and you hold it in your hands, may it serve as a reminder to you this morning of the barriers that Jesus has broken on your behalf, that he has overcome, that in him you may have life. So let us take up the bread and let us eat together and remember. As we flip that cup and we come to the juice, a symbol of his blood that was shed on our behalf, that he paid our debt in full, that we now have life in him. Would we recognize that he gave everything? And in turn, would we rid ourselves of any of those things that keep us from giving him everything? So let us take of the juice and remember. As we conclude our time, would you stand with me as we point our hearts towards him and song together.